Christian life means a victory among many things. Apostle Paul said in the Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Christians are invincible in Christ. Now, having said that, let me ask you this question. How would you define victory for yourself right now? In 2021 summer, how would you define victory? I hope you can really have a good answer to that. So you can pray for it and you can achieve it. And I hope you make this a fill in the blank answer specific and personal. Uh, somebody said, uh, you know, John, actually somebody named John uh, Whittier, John uh, Whittier, Whittier. He's uh, a Quaker a poet and staunch abolitionist in 18th century, uh, 19th century, sorry, what is that? 18th century or mid 18th century. And he said this, smile of God is a victory for him. For him, smile of God is a victory. All right. Today, we will learn about the principles of a victory in the life of David we've been studying. In Israel's history, no king had more victorious, more victories than David. That's why we call our second summer study on David, King's Triumphs. Second Samuel tells us David's many military campaigns against all the surrounding nations. If you look at the map, David beat the Moabites, ooh, that's a few Moabites on the south, uh, uh, east and the Edomite in the south and the uh, Ammonite for the northeast and the Arameans in the north and the, all the way to king of Joba in the Euphrates River. So today we will witness David's first major triumph over his arch enemy Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 17 to 25. So let's read our text today. When the Philistines heard David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the top of poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistines. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and they struck down Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gazer. Today's battle was the first major military victory of David as a king of Israel. 
In this story, we see three truths of a spiritual triumphs. With these three truths of a spiritual triumphs, I pray that we also live victorious life for the honor and glory of Christ our King. So let's see the, how the first war in 2 Samuel began. Look at the verse 17. When the Philistines heard David had been anointed the king of Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. The last person who went out to search for David in full force was who? In 1 Samuel, that was a Saul. The phrase, search for David, was a familiar expression in 1 Samuel. This was a deja vu. Why did a writer of the book of Samuel use the same expression to describe a Saul and Philistines? What is the one thing common about Saul and Philistine? They both resisted God's anointing of a David as a king of Israel. And here is a first principle of a spiritual battle, that is, anointing of God always brings attacks of the world. Anointing always brings attacks of God and attacks of the world. You know, when you follow God, don't expect the immediate blessings. Oftentimes, you will be attacked. You will under difficulties. Uh, uh, Kay Warren, a few years ago, wrote an article in Christianity Today. And uh, those of you who don't know who Carrie Warren is, she's a wife of a Rick Warren, the founding pastor of a Saddleback Community Church. Uh, one of the largest, uh, mega, well, one of the, not just, a, you know, mega churches, but a very uh, incredibly well-run, you know, church. And uh, Rick Warren is a real man of God. And uh, many people say in the past generation had a Billy Graham, we have a Rick Warren. Is a man of integrity, great man of wisdom, and also love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, Kay Warren and Rick Warren, they were both pastor's children. Past PK, we call it pastor's kid. Rick Warren was fourth-generation Baptist preacher. And they met at California Baptist College. And uh, they were campus couple, and then they got married when they were junior and senior. And then they moved out even Texas in Dallas. They attended uh, Southwestern Baptist Seminary. But would you believe it? According to Kay Warren, first couple years of their marriage, they went through, quote, marital hell. Outside, they were very successful and promising young pastor and his wife. But inwardly, in relationally, they are at war with each other. So Rick Warren has to sell as much, I mean, everything that he could liquidate to make money to attend marriage counseling for several months. And thank God, God protected them and saved them, and they bear wonderful testimony. The reason I talk about the Kay Warren and Rick Warren is this. We have, a, by grace of God, for us, you know, last few years, we have many young people and we have a largest group of uh, high school graduates going to college. And let me tell you, young people, this. The world is not fair. 
And life is not safe. And relationships are not easy. All right? Remember and expect and brace yourself for the unfair world and unsafe life and the hard relationship ahead of you. Good news is God is with us. Our God is Emmanuel. So as you will see today, you can overcome. But the first step toward the victory is this, to recognize the enemy. We must recognize that believing God and belonging to God means a battling for God. So today, David, when he heard it, he went down to stronghold, and the Philistines came and spread it in the valley of Rephaim. If you look at the map, Rephaim, valley of Rephaim was a, just a southwest of a, uh, a Jerusalem, a plain. And this is a very strategic place. This is a border of uh, Judah and the northern tribe. And the reason the Philistines made this uh, uh, border area as a battleground is that so that they will defeat the David and the northern tribe who just made a David their king will have a second thought about David. So coalition of Israel will fall apart. Now, we need to know a little bit of Philistines. Philistines were one of the most persistent adversaries of Israel in the promised land. Their origin was unclear. Philistines were not native Canaanites. They came to promised land somewhere like a north in Asian Asian, Asian Sea, in the Greek island. So they actually had an advanced civilization. If you look at the first Samuel, they were, uh, they already have an iron age. They already iron technology, whereas Israelites are still in the bronze age. And uh, they tried to establish in the same territory where Israelites were promised by God. So they struggled with Israelite all the way from 12th century before Christ to all the way to 6th century before Christ. And the last person actually vanished them or conquered them completely, Philistine, was Nebuchadnezzar, the one who even conquered Judah, the king of Babylon. So Philistines were persistent adversary of Israel, even till today, because Palestine, the name Palestine came from Philistia, which is a land of, of, of Philistine. Now, reason I talked about the persistent adversaries of Israel, like the Philistines, Christians, we have our own persistent adversaries. Who are or what is persistent adversaries of a Christian faith? The most persistent adversaries of a Christian, Christian faith is evil and sin, among which the most difficult kind of evil and sin is institutional and structural evil and sin. You know, individual and personal sins are obvious and easy to point out, whereas institutional structural sin are not easily detectable. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, in the past that uh, there's a great book written by uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, an American theologian. Its title is A Moral Man and Immoral Society. And uh, it was a groundbreaking book that both uh, Christian and non-Christian social theorists, they read 
And the reason that book is so prophetic is that individually, we are far more ethical. You know, you lie, you know you're a liar. You know, somebody's a liar, right? But whenever human beings come together as a group, we do horrible things in the name of the group. You know, so in the name of uh, some kind of uh, a common good, such as a national interest, human beings are far more prone to be violent and unjust as a collective unit. And that's why the discussion on critical race theory matters to us. So let me share today with you briefly how to respond to critical race theory. I came up with an acronym ACES, ACES. First A, avoid a simplified binary perspective. Christians, even evangelical Christians are divided about critical race theory. I heard both sides listening to podcasts over several weeks. And I even read the books and the articles that advocate you know, opposite in, uh, uh, proposals. And, and, uh, and I found almost all of opponents of uh, CRT have a very simplified reasoning. They say critical race theory has a Marxist origin and socialist trajectory in that white people are scapegoated and American history as a whole is at the stake of a complete revision to deny is a positive record and American legacy is a denounced. Therefore, critical race theory is incompatible with Christianity. There are some truth in that because the uh, critical race theory has a connection to critical theory, which came out of uh, Germany in 1920, a school called the Frankfurt School. And the thinker, German thinkers in the group, they have a Marxist orientation. But I want to say this. The bigger question that we are facing is that there are many non-Christian ideas already in our life, in our education. And we already dealt with that. So why one more non-Christian idea bother us? And we are so, you know, reactive to this. I want to say very clearly, Christian radical theory, CRT, is not a demon, it's not demon, nor the gospel. All right? It's not to be demonized nor idolized. It just has a point. So my first, you know, point, my first, you know, recommendation is avoid uncritical rejection, and uncritical acceptance of a critical race theory. Rather, let's apply whatever some valuable point that he bring it out. And on that, we have a Christian tradition. Do you know early Christians? They actually appropriated or they accepted and uh, they changed the Greek philosophy with a Christian biblical theology. And the early church fathers have this expression, plundering Egyptians. According to Exodus chapter 12, verse 36, when Israelites is, uh, you know, uh, leaving Egypt, God told Moses that tell Israelites to get all the you know, 
uh, get all the uh, uh, jewelries and the monies and gold and silvers from Egyptians because you've been their slave and you are not being paid. So plunder is Egyptians, okay? That's what God told Moses. And the early Christians, they took that expression and said, when you find some valuable truth even in the pagan religion or thought, it ultimately all truths are God's truths and you can use them and make sure that you use them carefully, prayerfully, and theologically. Do you get that? So early, it is in Christian tradition that we've been using the secular ideology with a baptizing with a biblical truth. The most famous of it is the first Corinthians chapter 12, 3, which is that through the Holy Spirit, everybody confess that Christ is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Those of you taking Cornerstone Bible study, you know that that is an intentional political statement. The first gospel declaration or charisma is a politically intended. And for that, Christians paid a heavy price. So point so A, once again, is that do not reject it simply because it doesn't have a Christian origin. We have a lot of science, you know, math. Does it say math is a biblical? Math is, you know, or science, you know, physics, you know, all kinds of scientific stuff, you know, computer science, languages, all this. They don't have a Christian origin, but we use them. Why don't you use a critical race theory too? Now, critical race theory, the second point is just a consider its concerns and historical diagnosis and the critical analysis. So CRT was developed in the United States during the 1970s and 80s in the law school by the minority ethnic students and scholars who look into how laws in the United States of America assisted once a powerful racist jurisprudence culture and power for a long time. You know, critical theory, they basically analyze and critique the power structure. So critical race theory is basically see how law played into the power structure. And uh, I'm a historian. My major was history. I'm glad that I study history. History matters to me because of facts are stubborn things. I believe in facts more than theory. And the critical race theory, they bring it out to several very important uh, factual findings. And, uh, you know, people, we should know this. We should be proud of United States of America. Not because we are perfect country in the world. I'm an immigrant. I'm a first generation immigrant. First time I took the U.S. history back in college, I laughed at the textbook because textbook over 1,000 pages. And our history is barely over 300. I'm from South Korea. South Korean history is 4,000. Textbook is a thin. So when I saw U.S. textbook, I said, what kind of joke is this? These people are definitely megalomaniac. And then I began to read a U.S. history. I was inspired. I was inspired by the U.S. history. Not because it's a perfect. No one ever envisioned the democratic, you know, government 
of a different people from different parts of the world come together. We made a lot of mistakes in the past. Don't deny it. We had a civil war on slavery. We have a racist past. Don't deny it. People who ever say we have a civil war because of an individual state, right? Come on. That is your brainwash. That is a wrong historical understanding. It's an individual state right to own the slaves. It's also about the slavery. Think about our story briefly. Declaration of Independence. We believe that all men are created equal by God or creator. That all men were not all men, white men. It took another 100 years to recognize the black people included that, all men. It took another 50 years, included all the women with a riding boat, boat right. And it took another 50 years to break out the separate but equal scheme. Things that I'm proud of being a citizen of the United States of America is not because we are perfect, pure country, but we recognize our problem and we rectify with honesty. I almost say hallelujah, but. Critical race theory, bringing out this kind of a historical facts and finding. So for instance, according to National Registry of Exoneration report in 2016, African-Americans are only about 13% of our U.S. population, but majority of innocent defendants wrongfully convicted of crimes and later exonerated is African-Americans, and the rate is 47%. Almost half of uh, people are exonerated or wrongfully accused were African-Americans. I'm not saying African-Americans, you know, inmates are all innocent. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, there is something systematic about that. Few years ago, I saw, you know, Dateline, and there was a very zealous, you know, DA in South Carolina, and they traced in his, their record, and they, he put the, all the wrong people in the prison, and they all, you know, many of them were released later, and the Dateline was saying that how come nobody bring, nobody, you know, uh, does, I mean, how come no one hold him uh, responsible for this wrong accusation? He's free. He just put the wrong people in the prison. Critical race theory, they, 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 they find, you know, there's, there's some people who reject the critical race theory and then they deny the systematic, you know, uh, racism in our culture. They say, we don't have any more uh, uh, Jim Crow kind of law. Legally, we, we, we are, you know, we have fair and just society. But look at the practice. Practice is not fair and just. And we have a so-called a lot of a microaggression. You know, last week, those of you who watched, uh, who read ESPN, you know, the Rachel Nichols story and Maria Taylor story, if you don't know, that's okay, it's not the gospel. But point is, there is a very, you know, a well-known well uh, uh, old uh, Caucasian female broadcaster, announcer in ESPN. And then she was complaining to her colleague that uh, Maria Taylor, who is African-American, 
you know, now, you know, uh, journalist in ESPN, whatever, the rising star that uh, she said, I, will, I want all the you know, success of the world for Maria Taylor, but she's getting my job because ESPN has a horrible record on diversity. So she said, Maria Taylor got my job, not because she is able, she earned the merit, but because she played the race card. I don't think Rachel's, I mean, uh, uh, Rachel Nichols, if, if you really ask her, are you racist? She will probably say, not in million years. What are you talking about? But she didn't know how racist her comment was. That's what the microaggression is. You know, as an Asian American, I experienced a lot of so-called forever foreigners go back to your country. You know, if you haven't heard of it, I hope you, you won, but uh, don't be surprised when you hear it. Some of, you know, Asian Americans here. So critical race theory, they bring in out this uh, very critic on this issue of uh, power. Those in power in America, so-called the white, by the way, by white, they're not talking about Anglo people. They're talking about white is a social construct. It's not a color of skin. It's a social classification. By the white, most people like you and me in the server, we are white. I just a month ago, I talked to a Korean American pastor who is a white as a whiter than white people when it comes to his you know, political orientation. So the final E is this, engage and strive for the shalom making gospel. And let me make it quick because I'm not here to preach the CRT. So let me, let me recommend two things. One, uh, Christianity Today did a four part series on CRT and it was uh, primarily done by uh, uh, a person named D.A. Uh, Horton. Do I have the, yeah, D.A. Horton. And the title of the series of Framing Critical Race Theory. D.A. Horton is an assistant professor of a California Baptist University. PhD, he received a PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Raleigh, North Carolina. He is an evangelical conservative theologian that you can find. He believed the full inerrancy of the scripture as well as a penal substitutionary atonement theory. Yet, he say the CRT is a misrepresented. And we, there's, uh, some, there's some very good intersection that we can use. And lastly, let me also read uh, last week, I mean, the editorial from another major Christian uh, magazine called The Christian Century. So let me read it quick. Treating CRT as a boogeyman allows its opponent to protect the institutional and cultural power for themselves. But more broadly, many American Christians across the, across the political spectrum lack a way of speaking about collective sin that is biblically rooted and socially transformative. Fortunately, we do not have to look far. The Bible is full of interrogations of the ways that communities and societies, institutions and structures become mired in sin. The Hebrew prophets repeatedly reminded that Hebrew people that as a people they've been called and as a people they will be redeemed. In the New Testament, believers are admonished the whole world at stake in God's redeeming work not just each individual heart, 
The Bible takes a communal nature of sin and redemption for granted, so much so that it can be hard for us to see how individualistic our biblical interpretation tends to be. The good news about collective and institutional sin is that, like an individual sin, it can be redeemed by acknowledging systematic sin and working to change unjust structure with the aid of tools like a CRT, we realign ourselves with God's work in the world. A faithful path forward involves a reckoning with the institutional sin and the learning new ways of speaking and understanding that can help us to diagnose what ails us and helps our nation on path to healing. For this, critical race theory is a gift. Let me just say this. Let us not be uncritical about critical race theory, but let us be constructive about CRT with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, we don't pursue victory. We don't pursue political victory, even in a cultural war. What we pursue, we pursue the righteousness of God and obey God's shalom-making gospel proclamation and practice in our life. George MacDonald, you know, Scottish writer and pastor whose book influenced C.S. Lewis and ultimately his conversion, said this, when a man argues for victory and not for truth, he is sure of just one ally that is a devil. Not the defeat of intellect, but the acceptance of the heart is the only true object in fighting with the soul of the spirit. So let us not just follow the victory at all costs. Our victory is the winning heart of the people with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me come back to the sermon now. Some of you who took a nap, that's all right. Now, when David heard the Philistines, you know, attacked him, what did he do? Verse 17 says, he went to the stronghold. And verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And will, will you deliver them into my hands? You know, David went down to the stronghold. We don't know much about uh, his, where his stronghold located. And I think the, the ambiguity of a stronghold was intentional on the part of the writer because he wanted to tell us that David's stronghold was not a place, but a person. David's stronghold is not a place, it's a person. The Lord was his stronghold. David went to the Lord, not out of fear, but out of faith. The most important and the first thing David did in his stronghold was not a plan or military tactic, but to ask God for guidance and promise. So a commentator remarks this, as the Philistines were searching for David in full force, as the Philistines searching for David for full force, David was a searching for God wholeheartedly. Amen? That is the second point. What is the second principle and truth of a spiritual victory? Listen to me. Make your battle God's battle. Make your battle God's battle. Don't fight alone. Fight with God. A few weeks ago, I said, don't work for God, but work with God. If you work for God, you will fail. No one is able to work for God. We can only work with God. 
once again, students, I have a youngest daughter going to college. So my, you know, my, I'm sorry, I become a very emotional this day. So bear with me. You know, college study will be hard. You know, you will find that a high school is easy. Seriously. If people say Plano West was a hard school, but still, you know, college is a level above. Now, as a fellow former student, I also struggled in my academics. It's my testimony. My second master in Princeton Theological Seminary, I had a hard time one semester because I have to write a paper on Karl Barth. Some of you heard about Karl Barth. The reason I had a hard time is that number one, everybody in Princeton is a Barthian. They, they claim to be expert of a Barth. So that's the one subject everybody know, they, 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 they know. Number two, Barth's major work, Church Dogmatic, is a notoriously hard book to read. How notorious? You ask anybody who tried to read. You read the same page five times, all English, you don't understand. That's why. You know, European, uh, 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 European way of a lecture, America, you know, American professors are very wonderful because they parse every concept and, you know, they work, they guide you step by step to understand the concept. Europeans, they don't do that, especially social science, such like theology. They just write the manuscript and they just read it. So Bart, all his uh, church dogmatics is actual class manuscript. And because it was so popular, soon as he finished you know, reading the uh, manuscript, the publisher was waiting outside and they took it and printed. So he didn't go through editing. Reading a book without editing is a horrible experience. And that's a call Bart. This is why people read a Kalbar and don't understand. I was in the same shoes. So guess what I did? Back then, I, I was an interim pastor of a church. I took advantage of that church. I said, we will have an early morning prayer meeting, 6 o'clock in the winter in Princeton, New Jersey, which is very cold. And we rented this humongous you know, a church. So there are only less than five people in the early morning prayer meeting. So American church didn't turn on the, you know, heater. So it was a cold, freezing cold. So, but, uh, you know, when pastor said, let's say have a morning prayer meeting, you know, some people came and we pray. After they're gone, guess what I pray? I pray, God, help me to understand Kalbar. Help me to understand Kalbar. Today, when I read a Kalbar, Holy Spirit, bring the spirit of Kalbar on me and help me to understand. That's what I pray for you know, for three months, and finally I wrote the paper. I know this is a little bit of self-bragging, but it's true. My, past, uh, my, my professor, Daniel Miller, said, Paul, this is a, one of the best Colbert papers that I've seen. And actually, I submitted to the Baylor. That's how I get into Baylor PhD. Now, point is this. Whether it's a study, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a job, don't work alone. Make your battle God's battle. Fight with God. That's the promise of God. And then what happened? They won. They won so much. The first 20, David defeated them. And when he defeated them, David said, as a water break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. And David changed the name of place from the Valley of Raphaim to Baal Perazim. And Baal Perazim means the Lord broke out. 
Lord broke out. In Genesis, uh, Judas had a twin from uh, Tamar, and the first of the twins named Paris, because when he was born, his, you know, the midwife thought he was a second, second born, but somehow he broke through and came out first. And so they called him Paris, broke through. Actually, the word uh, valuable Rephaim, Rephaim means a giant. So Philistines, you know, they are known to have a giant like a Goliath. And did you know that Goliath is a brother in the Bible? If you, you know, you, you look at a David's, you know, warrior killed actually Goliath's a brother. So Philistines has a many giants. So they call their battlefield the valley of a giant. And the you Israelite, you are nothing but a grasshoppers. We're going to squash you. And by grace of God, when David fought with God, God's power broke out like a flood and wiped them out. And so David called a new name, Baal Perazim. And then much more than that, verse 21 said, the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. This is an exact reversal uh, ending of an earlier battle in the first Samuel chapter four, when Israelites took the ark of the Lord and they lost the battle and they lost the ark of the ark of the Lord and the Philistines took the ark of the Lord to their, uh, their temple, temple of Dagon. Do you remember the story? This is a reversal. God reversed the shame and defeat of Israel. And that's what David experienced. When you make a God, your Lord and shepherd, you fight with God. This is what happened. You will make a breakthrough. God will help you to make a breakthrough. Let me go to final uh, point quickly. According to verse 22, Philistines came back. Once more, Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And there is a third point that is uh, we need to recognize the evil is resilient and they continue to fight. They don't go out easily. And Philistine, when they came back, probably they came back with a vengeance in mind. And many scholars believe that they probably brought a bigger number of soldiers and forces than before. So this is what the Satan does. He constantly challenges us. And now how did they be fight? David inquired the Lord, verse 23, and at this time, God said, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of a popular tree. And God said, I'll fight in front of you. And verse 25, so David did as the Lord commanded and struck down Philistines all the way from Gibeon together. Now, why did God told David this time, instead of frontal attack, does a sort of flank movement, attack in the behind? Is that God is also outnumbered by Philistines? Obviously not. God could have defeated the Philistines the same way. I think God was teaching David. When you fight, not just courage, you need to also tactics and wisdom and ultimately obedience. And the key thing that I find is that don't fight every battle the same way. Treat every battle differently. Every battle is a new battle. You know, yesterday there was some famous MMA fight, right? Brothers, you know, who am I talking about? You know, the famous Irish MMA fighter who lost. Hey, I'm so happy that he lost. Anyway, I'm not a fan of, uh, you know, that guy. But anyway, 
You ask, they've been fighting three times. Each time they traded new. They're planning already force fight to get our money. They're going to fight until, you know, nobody stops them. But anyway, stop watching them. But point is, any boxers, anybody, when they fight again, every fight is a new battle, right? And here is the truth. Oftentimes, the greatest enemy about our present battle is a past success. You know, our past success gives us a confidence. It's a good, but sometimes confidence becomes an arrogance, and it's not good. You know, so when you fight, we fight humility. That's what David expressed, I mean, David demonstrated for us. Let me quote the S.T. Gordon's, you know, word. He said, blessed, fruitful, victorious experience of yesterday are not only of no value to me today, but they will eventually actually be eaten up or reversed by today's failure unless they serve as incentive to still better, richer experience of today. Victory is not based on our past experience. Past experience, great experience is a valuable, but nothing is more valuable than our humility and our prayers, brothers and sisters. Let me close today's sermon with a quote from Alan Wetpass, who wrote a great book on David, The Making of a Man of God. He said this, Any battle for victory, power, and deliverance from ourselves and from sin, which is not based on constantly upon the gazing and beholding of the Lord Jesus, with a heart and life lifted up to him, is a doom to failure. Ultimate victory is when we fight with the Lord, and each time we go with Jesus. I want to say this. I'd rather have a defeat with Jesus than victory without Jesus. Let me repeat that. Some of you don't realize what I'm talking about. I'd rather have a defeat with Jesus than victory without Jesus. My goal in life is not a success. My goal in life is obedience to the Lord. Why do we do house church? This is a very difficult small group ministry. But because that's what we find in the New Testament. So when David finally obeyed, God gave him a victory. According to verse 25, this was sweeping victory given unto Gaza. East to the west, God gave him a complete victory. Brothers and sisters, every time you and I are humbled before God and asking God to fight with us and for us and go before us and we faithfully follow God, God will give us a sweeping victory. Let's pray.